Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. I have with me today my uh, dear friend Shane Morris from the Colson Center. Uh, Shane is a senior writer and the uh, host of the Upstream Podcast for the Colson Podcast Network. Uh, him and I are uh, dear friends, and I wanted to have him on today to talk about how to save the world. Uh, and I, I say that in jest, but in part, that is really what we're trying to get at. So, uh, Shane, thank you so much for coming on, brother. Appreciate you. Thanks for inviting me. Finally, I was beginning to feel like you didn't, you know, appreciate or love me because <laughs> right. uh, I hadn't got the invite yet. Yes. Well, hopefully this will atone for all of my sins and I can uh, be back in your good graces. Uh, so. I mentioned we want to talk about saving the world, and let me just set the conversation up. Um, and this is a conversation that Shane and I have had uh, over the course of many years over campfires, and it's something that's very dear to, to uh, both of us. Uh, but as we look around the world, we see that it's sort of infected with uh, chaos. Just uh, institutions are disintegrating, uh, bonds of trust are broken. Um, hostility is sort of rising because of political disagreements. Uh, last summer, we watched as our cities burned down. Uh, whether or not we could justify those movements or not, that's kind of besides the point. And as we try to wrestle with what we're dealing with in our current um, cultural context, I think at least part of what we need to discuss is the disintegration of the family. Uh, as a unit, as an organism, the smallest uh, sort of society that we begin with. Uh, so I, I, I know that we don't have time to sort of fill in all the gaps that's outside of the purview of this conversation, but I do at least want to start a conversation about what's going on with the family in the modern world, what are some things that are affecting it, and how is that extrapolated and manifest in the chaos that we see currently? Mm. So I'm uh, happy to have just a conversation wherever you want to go with that. We can, we can go there. It seems to me, Dale, that one of the key obstacles we need to overcome is the fact that nobody is defining the family the same way. Mm. Uh, family is a word that's become infinitely malleable and, um, you see it, it, it everywhere from advertisements where it's like, you know, become part of the Allstate or the Geico family or whatever. It's it, because you're going to be our customer. You're going to be paying us money to insure your car. Um, you're now a member of a family. Or if yeah. you're an employee somewhere, it's like this, you know, we're part of the X company family here, but, you, you know, don't mess up or we'll fire you um, right. or, or, or any number of other weird or perhaps the, um, the, the re revisions of the family that we see in things like same-sex marriage. So there's, there are new models of the family. There's a modern family. There are different ways to do families. We have children's books that show, you know, two mommies, two daddies, or like three parents working together to raise kids or no parent or, you know, no kids. And instead we have cats and dogs or something. It's everything can be a family now. And so if it means anything, it seems like it means nothing. So the first obstacle we have to overcome is, what is the meaning of family and do we even agree on that? Or is just, is it just a, a feel good word? Is it one of those words that's lost all its, um, you know, all its cognitive content to where it's just a, a label we slap on something we want to mean a good association of multiple people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think really, um, 
I mean, we see in Genesis when when God is creating everything, he makes man. He sees that it's not good for man to be alone. None of the animals on offer are a suitable mate for the man. Uh, So he puts the man to sleep and out of the side of the man, he creates a wife, a woman. Um, And then these two come together in holy matrimony. And out of that uh, union uh, is intercourse, which naturally makes more humans. And this is all part of the divine plan to subdue uh, the earth and take dominion of it. Mm. Um, What's baked into that narrative is a natural hierarchy. And perhaps the phenomenon that you're discussing is sort of the modern spirit rebelling against the idea of a hierarchy, but not being able to shake loose the idea of community in general, but also uh, authority structures that maintain that community. Uh, So in the X company where you work and become a family, you do have a CEO and then you have the management class and then you have the underlings that are cubicle, uh, you know, dwellers that just sort of do the day-to-day grunt work to keep the machine rolling. Uh, So even in these sort of modern contexts where families just being applied to relationships between humans, it, as much as they want to turn family into a sort of an amorphous term to talk about any collection of humans, it nevertheless still retains uh, it, it, at least implicitly, and I would say explicitly, uh, uh, a gesture towards a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the modern world, we hear the word egalitarian a lot. So what I'm saying is, if we're going to recover a good definition of the family, Perhaps one of the one of the ways that we start is by just admitting to ourselves that there is a natural hierarchy, and this doesn't uh, necessarily come from the Bible. Uh, the Bible lays it out not explicitly; it doesn't say here's the hierarchy mm-hmm. in the Old Testament anyway. Uh, but this is just uh, to use C.S. Lewis's uh, reference to uh, natural law: the Tao. This is just the waters we swim in as human beings. Uh, so how number one do you think that's a good assessment of where we're at in the modern world with sort of eliminating hierarchies but still being enslaved to them because it's just part of being a human Mm -hmm. uh and if so what do we do to sort of connect uh men women mothers fathers children grandparents back into an intentional reflection of that structure uh in order to like start to carve out a more defined uh way of understanding the family so I had our mutual friend, Stephen Wedgworth, on Upstream a while back, and we talked about an article he had on the, the deep theological significance of male and female. And mm-hmm. he quoted this sociologist, a secular figure, I, I forget his name, um, who said that patriarchy is inevitable. And what the guy meant was that even in, in contexts where you declare egalitarianism, the, the goal and the format that your families or your society or your government is going to take, inevitably there's going to be a patriarchy that develops de facto and becomes Mm. the, there will be men who are ruling the roost, whether they are, um, you know, men who have, who have the natural sort of leadership roles that, that are involved in the family as we would understand it uh, and the church and, and other institutions, or whether they're men like, you know, the Jeff Bezoses of the, of the world or the Bill Gateses mm. who rise to the top and become the, or the, you know, Tim Cooks who rise to the top and become the, the controlling de facto, um, uh, oligarchy of society. So, 
you know, say what you will about um, we us living in an egalitarian society, the feminists are right in one thing, and that is that uh, men are still overwhelmingly the top dogs uh, when it comes to the the that tiny sliver of a one percent of the richest, most influential, most powerful guys, um, and it's just they are guys. So the yeah. patriarchy is to some extent inevitable just because we're humans. And like you said, that's the way we're designed, but we're still kicking against that design. And in the, in the process, the, the, um, casualty, the casualties are measured in real, you know, families and institutions downstream from the, the big stuff where we, or rather down the food chain from the big stuff <clears throat> where our churches are no longer, um, led by the men that God has appointed. Our families are no longer led by the men that God has appointed, you know, half of families, uh, uh, more in some areas of the country are female led. It's, it's their, their single mother households um, or intergenerational households led by a, a kind of matriarchy. So that state of affairs is to some degree inevitable. As we talk about, um, the, I, I agree with you then that hierarchy is baked in, as it were, it's part of the thing. But uh, as we talk about restoring a natural and good and benevolent form of hierarchy because i don't think anyone thinks that large mega uh, mega powerful mega rich oligarchs rule uh, having the prime influential spots in society is a good arrangement for us to have right um then we're gonna have to grapple again with that definition of the family like so there was this david brooks article a few uh, i guess it was like two years ago in the new york times where he talks about the he criticizes the idea of the nuclear family and he says that the nuclear family is really kind of an invention of the 1950s. Uh, this idea that mom and dad get married and they move out to the suburbs and mom stays home and, you know, uh, uses all her Sears appliances and wears this pretty little dress and right. uh, vacuums and stuff. And, and, and then the uh, kids go off to school and dad goes to work and he comes home every night. It's like some, some kind of sitcom or, or, or something. Um, he says that's not really historically a family. That's a, that's a vision that we cooked up in the last couple of generations and said, that's the family. And he points toward intergenerational households being the, the historical norm. And there was some good points in there, but I also heard some good pushback, um, especially from a biblical point of view where people said, well, look, David, you know, it's, it does say in Genesis, <laughs> Moses did write, uh, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So the nuclear family may not be the be all end all of what we consider a family. It's not the, the totality, but it is the core of the, of the family. It is the heart, the beating heart of it. And so as we define what that hierarchy looks like, and then what a family is supposed to be, it seems like we we do have to answer that question. How to what extent can we retrieve the halcyon days of the 1950s, and mm -hmm. uh, and to what extent do we have to go back further and figure out from scratch what a family is actually supposed to look like? Because we have no idea uh, what it's supposed to look like today. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, talking with uh, Joe uh, yesterday uh, just about family stuff, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and a lot of times when because what you're saying is just true in the modern world we don't even self-consciously understand uh 
how to put this thing together, we sort of inherit a vision of it from TV, from the media, and the modern mind is formed more through those mediums than it is with just a natural reflection on the cosmos and watching order and seeing how nations uh, get along with one another. How does everything come together, really? How, how is humanity still progressing forward? Uh, relatively stable, given the human capacity to like, you know, rape, pillage, destroy and, and tear down. Um, and it really does come down to the family. And when you're talking with modern people, here's what I've recognized, Shane. Uh, most people, um, they don't even have uh, the proper categories in which to organize their thought. Here's what I mean. If I tell a father, hey, you're the head of your home, you're the leader, you're the provider, you're the protector. That means that the responsibility of the health of your home lies squarely on your shoulders. You would get a bunch of pushback uh, because, well, maybe not, but sometimes you get a bunch of pushback because I think the move there is to go, well, my wife uh, um, has to take care of the kids and she's responsible and she's got to do these things. And it's more like, uh, you know, the indictment that uh, Adam leveled against Eve when they got called sinning. It's like, you gave me this woman, right? Uh, and so men don't even have, in my experience, the modern mind, when you're talking with young men, and this is also why I think Jordan Peterson is such an influential character, they don't even have... Um, they, they don't possess the ability to understand the level of responsibility before they get married of what it means to be a husband or a father. And a lot of these guys get married just because they want to have sex. They're burning with lust. They're young. Uh, it depends on what context you come from, but more than more times than not, uh, marriage is entered into primarily to satisfy lust. Mm -hmm. And then which when I, you, which I think, if you have the right social um, expectations and uh, and God forbid, you know, shame uh, structures in place, you can actually you can actually build a pretty functional civilization that way because mm. men intermarriage, looking to satisfy their sexual urges, and that's the gas that's like the spark plug that gets it going. Um, and then they have all these these rails that keep them from going into the gutters and uh, divorcing or, or 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 leaving their spouse in some other way or or messing around here and there. It's just kind of the you can't do that because that's what society expect expects of you. But now we actually have to be good, you know, bowlers because we don't have the lanes or we don't have the uh, gut the. Uh, uh, what are they called? Rails. The guardrails yeah. to keep yeah, yeah keep you on the lane and out of the gutters. Uh, so you can no longer let young men just go into that and then expect the social safety rails to keep them in in the lane. Yeah, and I wonder. I mean, and I know a lot of this is going to be anecdotal, um, but I remember when I was growing up, my father was very, very, very uh, clear about the importance of the family, about yeah. what men are supposed to do, what women. And I and I wonder what's contributing to this deformed view, because if we do believe that the Bible establishes a hierarchy in which the father sort of rules the house um, in a benevolent way, as you said, mm -hmm. what's preventing men from uh, sort of recognizing that about their role as they go into marriage instead of like just the sort of animalistic impulses of their desires? What, where's the disconnect? Is it in rearing? Is it in education? Is it in social media? And I'm sure all of that's a contributing factor. Yeah. 
But how do we get our finger on the pulse in order to look little men, uh, uh, young men in the face and say, hey, this is actually what you should be thinking about before you go out looking for the woman? Yeah. Well, I hate to um, be the guy who brings up Carl Truman first, but I'm going to do that. Um, The concept of expressive individualism, which is not his concept, but one that's key to his recent book, seems to be at the heart of the redefinition or undefining of the family to me, because at the very earliest stage, marriage becomes instead of this thing that's a, it's part of a, it's part of being a good uh, citizen in your culture and community. It is uh, taking on responsibility for a lot more people than just yourself. And it is enacting a sacrament of sorts, whether, you know, whether Hmm. it's a formal sacrament or kind of an informal thing, it is something that has import for people well beyond just the two of you. Um, That was, that was historically something that, that people acknowledged and understood and recognized and that public ceremony with the vows and the witnesses, and then the sort of promise the people made to support that marriage was a recognition of that fact. Well, now expressive individualism has turned marriage into really a, almost like a, um, uh, a, a recognition or a public declaration of feelings. It's, we, we really feel super strongly about each other now. And so strongly that we're going to make it official. We've already been playing house, you know, up until now, but we're going to make right. it official and put this, this sort of arcane imprimatur on our relationship and say, this is now a real official thing. And half the time or, or slightly less than half the time, it doesn't, doesn't end up working out because it's just based on those feelings. And we've heard again and again from marriage books for a couple of, you know, several decades now that a marriage that's based on feelings will fall apart as soon as the feelings fade that you, yeah. you know, if you, I don't, I don't, feel in love with you anymore. Therefore, I'm not going to stay in love with you. And that's one interesting angle. But the angle that we're talking about that really interests me is the lack of understanding that marriage has a social and public component. That's the word I'm looking for, a public element where when you get married, you're affecting a lot of people besides just the two of you. This is not Mm -hmm. just about your feelings. This is about the responsibility that you now bear to your community and your church and your um, broader society, because this is the basic building block of, of human civilization. And now you're doing something that's going to bring other people into existence in all probability. And you now have responsibility to them. Um, I watched this, uh, I, I put it into a breakpoint commentary um, that should be airing over Father's Day. But I, uh, we watched this movie that came out the year before I was born with Tom Selleck. It's called Three Men and a Baby. Yeah. Uh, and it was like, we're getting rid of Disney Plus. So Gabby said, uh, hey, let's let's look up the best live action movies on Disney Plus. And so we looked this one up and uh, it's on Disney Plus. It's got, you know, sex and drug references, but it's it's there. And sure. um, and the whole the whole theme is that you've got uh, these these three playboys who basically live together and they go out and they they get women and they bring them back or they bed them elsewhere. And they're just like trading stories about their exploits. And they're they're mm. all professionals. And one's like an artist, one's an architect, one's a, an actor. Um, it, but then one of them uh, fathers a baby and the baby shows up at the doorstep. Mom says, you know, I can't take care of you. You have to take care of him, Jack. And so they're thrown into this, th- the, this trio has to figure out how to take care of a baby. And over the course of the movie, it's kind of endearing because they, this little girl, you know, changes their hearts and makes them into mm. 
more nurturing people. And by the end, they've got this bond with the baby where they can't bear to see her go. And that bond that they've, that they've uh, created with the child ends up sort of bringing mom and dad together for something. It looks a little more like a relationship than a fling, but, um, or, or maybe even a, an upstart marriage or family. But um, the, the point, of that is that um, the the lifestyle that says sex doesn't mean anything and it's only about an expression of feelings or achieving gratification for myself and this other person, it in, it doesn't work. And children are a test are the the chief ch- testimony to that because you're bringing new humans into existence. You now have responsibility for those humans, and um, and that was a great. I love that there was a recognition of that. You know, it's it's a pretty old movie, but. Um, yeah, I, I just called myself old, but, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it is a recognition of that. And we, we try to war against that with our, our more modern conception of, of marriage um, because we're, we're denying with things like abortion and contraceptive, we're denying that, that we have responsibility to the generations that will come. And then we're also denying that we have responsibility to the people around us, to the families that are involved in the wedding and everything. So maybe the answer to your question in a long-winded roundabout way is that we've lost the public component of marriage. We just, we really do think of it now as just uh, uh, an extra, the next level of this emotion centric, personal, private relationship. Yeah. And I think that, uh, I mean, we live in an age where everything is streamed. It's on demand. I can order a coffee from Starbucks that would have taken me an hour to make in five minutes. Mm-hmm. I can go to McDonald's and get the hamburger and fries in five minutes. Well, maybe not McDonald's, but definitely Chick-fil-A. <laughs> uh, My pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so our con- the convenience that we've adopted, and here's the irony, the convenience of the modern age and mobilization um, has really fractured uh, the sort of sh- it's cut the strings of communal life in general, which is trickling down into the smallest community, which is the family. So if we think that we can do whatever we want, divorced from the help or aid of our neighbors, and we get to live on a little island of existence where I can stay in my house and never come out and I can have everything dropped right off at my door with the push of a few buttons, uh, then that, I think, creates a pathology of thought that contributes to this notion that I don't need to be in service to the public. Mm-hmm. What, it doesn't matter what they want. I'm for me. I'm living for myself. It's all about my feelings. It's about my desires, my needs, satisfaction immediately on demand. Yeah. Um, and then if you do happen to seek out companionship with a woman and you get married and you have a child, and this child's growing up in the modern age, you actually have no tradition to pass on to that child that makes it important for them to recognize their community. And I think we're a few generations into something like that. Uh, So the modern age is difficult to navigate in terms of defining family and understanding the importance of it, I think precisely because we have become hyper-individualized, as you're saying. Uh, And in a in a way, you almost, I mean, you can blame people, they're, you know, full agents, but in a way, this is just what they've adopted. They were born into this context. And that used to mean that when you were born in, let's say, during the frontier days, if you were born on a homestead, and you've got 15 older siblings, you all got a, you all have a role to play on the farm. And it's the life of the home 
depends on each eight actor in the home. You know what mom and dad were doing every night after hoeing the fields. And- <laughs> right, right, right. Because what, what else are you going to do? There's no Netflix. Um, <laughs> but just the chill. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yes. So I think that, and this is really what conservatism focuses on, right? In appreciation for what your forefathers has gi- have given you. So we're only here because of our forefathers. We only get to hang out on the couch in our air-conditioned homes, mm-hmm. order the Netflix, get the delivery from Uber Eats. We only get to partake in all those conveniences because of the sacrifices of those that came before us. Yeah, and that actually gives us a, a, a that that puts a responsibility on us to pass that down to our children. And once you have that legacy vision, it r- sort of cracks off the crusty. Uh, form of modernity and the self-expressive individualism and really opens up uh, the whole world in front of you. So at the beginning, when we're talking about saving the world, it really is a worldwide project because Mm -hmm. every human being is participating in it on some level. So yeah, you and I have talked about incrementally improving our families and our, our own moral lives and how what matters most is just being in the project to to, to uh, better conform to God's moral standards and ideals. Um, and you just got to move from where you are. It's like, it's like Jordan Peterson's rule in the first book, 12 rules, uh, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. And um, a Mm. lot of that applies to this conversation about the family, because Gabby and I were talking about last night, actually, um, on the way home from, from Fort DeSoto with the Hesters that, um, we have just no culture, nothing, nothing that we would call culture in a historical sense. It's, it's kind of, it is an anti-culture as Truman says. And so we live in this very impoverished technology centric, um, me centric, uh, uh, soup where kids can basically just, they're encouraged to choose some other identity besides who they are and their family and the heritage that they've been given from their, their forefathers. And it's our job to rebuild that. And we're not going to, we're at the like nadir of this thing. As far as I can tell, I, you know, hope to God it doesn't get, get worse. But as far as I can tell, we're at the bottom of this pit. We are as individualist as you can possibly go to the point where people are grabbing onto any identity that they can possibly get. And that's where you get the, the identity politics and the, the race tribalism and everything like that. <clears throat> but at this point, our job is to, you know, stop digging the hole and to move our kids up back toward the light somehow. Um, and, and even if that's in a small, yes, but tangible way, we will have done something good. So it's, we have to be, you, like you said earlier, we, we have to be easy or not easy, but we have to be um, fair with people and realize that, look, they, they weren't taught these things. My, our generation was not taught uh, that you've got to have all these these wonderful um, intergenerational ideals, traditions, values, structures, all of that in place. They didn't get get any of that. You know, they sat around playing Sonic the Hedgehog when they were kids. Right. And so now we have to um, build from the ground up. And even if we make a, a incremental step in that direction, we will have done something good. We can't we can't blame we can't just come down on people and go what a failure you are because your family looks nothing like, you know, the, like John Adams family. Or right, right, <laughs> like, right, right, right. No, no. The Swiss family Robinson or something. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And, and uh, that's what, that's what I was uh, uh, trying to get at earlier, but 
Joe and I were talking about like triage. Mm -hmm. It really is in a moment of triage. So you've got the bodies coming in from the battlefield and you've under the medical tent and you're evaluating, okay, everything is a bloody mess. Mm -hmm. Things are crazy. Chaos is raining. I have no idea what's going on. What is the one thing I can do that's going to help a person that is still like able to be helped? So, you know, the dude whose head's caved in, you, you're like, okay, he's I'm probably not going to save him. But the dude over here whose leg's blown off, I could probably help him. Um, and so I think you're right. Um, just to highlight your point, one thing I would say is uh, just understand that when you get married, what happens is you, uh, you have your good, uh, you come together with your wife, and that is going more times than not to produce a child mm. just that very basic you know an, uh, understanding of what happens in sex and you should assume that when you get married children come after that yeah uh if if we have and you mentioned birth control earlier and abortion and i mentioned like the on-demand spirit of the modern mind all of that contributes to sort of like um, a buffet of selections of out of the possible futures. I can get married to this woman, but I don't necessarily have to have babies because we can just put on a pill or put on use some other uh, means to prevent that from happening. And so we can sort of design our life as we want. Yeah. But if we can shake the modern mind uh, and say, no, uh, you should just follow the natural way that humans have always reproduced in order to keep us going. <laughs> uh, if you could just embrace that as the thing that marriage is going to produce, then your mind shifts to like, oh, well, when I get married, it's not just that I'm entering into uh, becoming a husband, I'm also entering into possibly becoming a father and I need to plan accordingly. Hmm. So just that little small step that we can do with our, our, our sons, uh, the men in our life, the young men in our churches, the young men in our communities, just that very basic principle right out of the gate, I think would at least help someone somewhere and, you know, stop the uh, stop the the blood flowing. Yeah. Uh, and there's a bazillion other things that we could say, but that's perhaps just one basic thing. And you can't even assume that that is understood right. because I, I remember a couple of years ago, I wrote this blog entry called something like, if you are not okay with having kids, you shouldn't get married or you yes. shouldn't have sex or get married. And, um, and I got a you know, surprising amount of, of pushback from that, from Christians who were saying, well, just because we're not ready for kids yet doesn't mean we shouldn't you know, get married and, and get to know each other and love each other and have this, this time together and all that, you know, all that jazz. And my response was always, what do you think marriage is for? Right. What, why is it that you're getting together? What do you think sex is for? You think it's just playtime? I mean, you think, right. you really think that's what, what God designed it for? You think that's what, you know, you don't even bring God into the picture. Do you think that's what, what do you think? Evolution? Do you think it's what evolution designed sex for? Sure, <laughs> like, sure, sure. Go exactly. on. It, it, no matter what angle you come at this from, it is a reproductive act. And, you know, you, you can't adopt this. What was it? Who, who's, who did the song, you know? our baby making bodies we just use for fun is the line in uh, there. And that, that's the, that's the attitude. So that, that at that most fundamental level 
of even the purpose of sex, seeing teleology mm. in the sexual act and then in marriage, which, which consecrates the sexual act, that that's a step we have to take if we don't have that basic level down. You know, we got to do our ABCs here. We can't yeah. expect people to read if we, if, if even Christians are assuming this about things. And don't hear me as saying, you know, I'm not some quiverful guy. I don't think it's, it, you know, you have to, every, every time you have sex, it has to be for having a kid. Um, yes. What I'm saying is that um, marriage and sex are ordered toward that among ends. And that is one of, that is like the chief thing toward which it's obviously ordered. And if you're not, if you're actively at war with that or assuming that that's not even a factor and you can have a marriage that is closed off to that entirely, then you're, you're just not interested in marriage. You're just not interested in what it, what it's actually designed to do. Um, and that's, that's one basic level. We keep coming back to this idea of, of sex not being, it's, you know, it's a obviously private thing, but it's in another sense, it's public because yeah. of what it does. And um, if you don't recognize that, then you are just that silly individualist who's, who's saying my, I can do whatever I want. My actions don't have consequences. I can, you know, I can burn asbestos every day in my backyard and my neighbors right. don't get to say anything about it because it's my property. That's, yes. that's the attitude you have with your body when you say that I can just use sex recreationally and not expect family to result or any obligations to my surrounding community to result from that. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been talking about um, sort of marriage mm -hmm. uh, as we're trying to get towards a good biblical definition of um, what family is. Uh, but maybe we could talk about when a man and a woman do come together, what, what is it that makes a man a man in his role as a mm. husband and then as a father? And what is it that makes a woman a woman in her role as a mother and a wife? And these two, if we, if we can at least start to feel the contours of an answer on that front, I think that's another thing that will help us sort of dig down into defining what we mean when we say family or home. Yeah. So, um, so maybe we'll start with the women first, uh, since they're the ones that sinned first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, obviously that's where that's ladies first came from. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, but maybe talk about, what is it that makes a woman a woman and what's the unique role she plays in a in a in a marriage as a wife and as a mother yeah this is the sticking point for a lot of evangelical middle of the road evangelical commentators because they want to say yes there are distinctions between male and female uh, man and woman are not interchangeable and marriage is designed to bring the two together because they are complementary halves of a whole. But then when you, when you begin to try to talk about, you know, roles or natures beyond the physical, the obvious physical level, you get kind of blank stares or deer in the headlights looks because it, it, as soon as you start saying women's role or women's nature is this men's role, right. women's nature is this, um, then you be, you begin to offend people. You be, begin to step on toes. And to some extent, I've, I've been in places in my thinking on this where I've almost been in despair of even being able to talk about it um, or, or of pastors even being able to talk about it from the pulpit. Because if you read, you know, you read the reformers, my 
goodness, mm-hmm. the the depth of their distinction and their their understanding of the genders not being the same and the the offensive things they said. You fast forward even to just a couple of generations ago with someone like C.S. Lewis. I, I um, you know, I posted that passage in Mere Christianity where he talks about why men are supposed to be the head of the household. And, and I'm like, this is the only reason this is okay still is because it's C.S. Lewis and, and people are giving him a pass. Yeah, but, right. but the, but, you know, but a lot of writers in the evangelical world, if say a certain pastor from Moscow said this exact same thing, they would jump down his throat. They would be all over him. It would be a massive witch hunt. And, and the reason is because we've lost the ability to even think in those terms and we get offended and, and throw up our heads and throw a, throw up our hands and throw a tantrum whenever anyone tries to even venture into that territory. So that's the deer in the headlights look that evangelical commentators who believe men and women are different, but can't get into specifics end up giving you because they're just like, "Uh, I can't say exactly how or what the roles are, but there's, there's some difference there. So let me venture into the, into the dangerous territory. Because yes. I've, you know, I think again, Stephen Wedgworth has been really helpful on this, uh, among other guys. But uh, males, loosely speaking, and this is, I have to credit my friend Sarah from Hamilton as well for uh, um, helping me through this. Males, generally speaking, and we can get into the defense of generalizations as a legitimate way of thinking if you want. Sure, but sure, generally sure. speaking, males are protological. They're they mm-hmm. have to do with beginnings. We are initiators. We're visionaries, we're conquerors, we're explorers. Females are eschatological. They have to do with the end of things. They are the glory of man, according to Paul. They're glorifiers, they're beautifiers, they're nurturers. They are custodians of civilization. They they expand and enlarge and beautify and glorify whatever it is that's given to them by men. or they receive and enlarge. So, and you can even see that in the sexual act, uh, uh, yes. sort of symbolized, and the and the gestation and childbearing that takes place. <clears throat> so, uh, another way of putting it historically in in mythological terms is that men are like the sky father, and women are like the earth mother. And you even mm-hmm. see those roles play out in Genesis. And again, I will for for to point to the legitimacy of what I'm saying, and to know yeah. that I'm not some sort of I'm not some sort yes. of red pill, crazy alt-right guy. Yes, Lewis yes. says exactly this. He says that men are sky fa- really do live out or embody the sky father archetype and women really do live out and embody the earth mother archetype. So <clears throat> um, when you take all those things together as generalizations, again, giving room for the you know exceptions and the overlap and so forth, you do have these two ideals or these centers of gravity toward which men and women tend to... Uh, tend to move or tend to be by nature. Marriage then is the bringing together of those two poles into this incredible productive and life-giving environment where you then raise new people and bring those ide- those ideals together into like a, you know, a synthesis of sorts. Yes. So that's the, it, out of those ideals flow roles. Now roles, I would be very comfortable saying that roles are much more malleable and culturally dependent and so forth. There are some roles that are probably going to be, we could, we could talk about those that are probably going to be, um, you know, for the men or for the women normatively it, you know, throughout time, but there are other roles that are going to be, that are going to shift from, from one to the other. Typically speaking, uh, things that are very strength oriented, very spatially oriented, um, that involve a lot of danger, 
or blood and guts or peril. Those are going to be the masculine tasks, the ones that are um, domestic, because we have we have very good precedent in the New Testament for women being domestic, even if we even if we <clears throat> throw out a lot of the 1950s stereotypes, yeah. um, because that that kind of household is an industrialized household. It's a little different from his, historical households. But even if we throw all those out, Paul says, you know, women should be keepers at home. So there is yeah. that women are, um, you know, they they are physically softer, more gentle creatures. They have um, less capacity for sort of violence and blood and guts and gore and fighting and much more capacity for um, for nurturing and and curating and loving and just raising up ten, the tender creatures we call children. And then, of course, doing the the kinds of um, the kinds of wonderful things that women have often contributed on an intellectual front where uh, there, there's a lot to be had there from the female perspective in terms of, uh, of thinking that often men would overlook be just because of our natural bent and our natures. And um, that's good. We should encourage that. We should have, you know, I, you and I talked about it at the recent Davenant Convivium about um, Luther's ideal of men and women both being educated. He wanted educated mm-hmm. wives, educated yes. mothers, because that's the seedbed of, of, civilization and you gotta mm-hmm. you know they're raising kids they yeah. should be they should know what they're talking about so those are the yeah. that's my broad sketch of the differences and then we can talk about you know whatever else you want like pathologies that arise from those or sure so well i think it's interesting because um i was reading bovink i'm, I'm right in the middle of reading bovink's uh, the christian family Hmm. Uh, and he makes the he makes the observation that in Genesis the Eve is taken out of Adam out of the side yeah. and then they come together to reform one flesh one bone flesh of my flesh bone of my bone in a more complex one. and personal way yes and he makes the comment and I actually wrote it in the margins of the paper or the page and I'll see if he answers it later but I don't think he will uh, where he says that when the man and the woman come together and they produce this third member of the family, which is a child, they're imprinting both the masculine and the feminine on that new child, whether that child's a male or a female, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. Uh, And that the male and the female, the mom and the dad, uh, they both get certain feminine qualities. So the male will receive certain feminine qualities and the man will receive, what did I say? Hold on, let me say. The man will receive certain feminine qualities and the woman will receive certain masculine properties. And then together in the one flesh union, they communicate that to the child. Doesn't matter the the child's uh, gender. So um, my question in the margin was like, what what feminine qualities? Yeah. And if I were to venture a guess, what you've done is very helpful. I think I, I, I basically agree with everything you said in terms of roles and natures. Um, but as a father, I am nurturing to my children, right? Yes. So I'm I'm leading my children, I'm discipling them, I'm raising them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, I'm providing for them in terms of food, but also mm-hmm. spiritual food. Um, I'm casting a vision, I'm charting out the course towards the celestial city for my home, my whole household, right. uh, and dad's sort of the captain. Uh, but I can go down in the barracks and I can do all the nurturing things to the children that my wife has the primary role and responsibility of doing. And the primary role and responsibility is not something, I think this is important, that I'm sort of hoisting on her shoulders oppressively and saying, you must do this. Mm -hmm. 
it's more like you're coaxing out of her the natural impulses that she already has given her her nature and her inclinations. Right. And that's what a good husband does. Uh, the wife is the first mate on the ship. She's listening to the husband. He's giving the direction. He's casting the vision. The first mate says, that was a stupid move. We shouldn't take that route. And you go, huh, the wise man will say, listen to your first mate. She is the thing that God has given you in order to navigate. She is your helper, literally. Yeah. I always think and of uh, Starbucks in uh, in in Moby Dick, where Ahab just like uh, he's like, you know, forget all these other whales. We're gonna go after the white whale. And he, Starbucks like, look, we gotta we gotta make money, and we don't know where this whale is. And last time we tried to harpoon him, he tried to kill us. So why don't you know? Me and the men were talking. Maybe we should just I don't know. Get some other whales and go back to you right. know go back to new england and and ahab's like no we have to get the white whale and that's so that's the you know part of the yes. role of the first mate <laughs> yes exactly and and when when those things are communicated clearly within a marriage i'm sort of getting into the dynamics mm -hmm. because you could fall in a ditch in two ways you could be a man who doesn't take any responsibility to lead because you don't understand that you're supposed to yeah. uh or you could be a man that sort of feels your insecure weakness and overcompensates that for that in your marriage and become a domineering authoritarian rather than a wise Solomon who leads well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that once the man and the my, my wife and I, if we sit down and she really thinks, if she doesn't just think, but if she believes and knows in her heart that I am here for her and I'm not just only going to do these tasks over here that most correspond with my nature and my role, but that I'm actually going to reach over into your functions in the family and help you there, therefore taking onto myself some level of femininity, mm -hmm. uh, then she's going to reciprocate that. She's going to actually pick up where I'm being weak in my stuff in my roles given my nature and together you become one and the household maintains order hmm. this is very important for the health of the psychological and spiritual health of the mother and father but also for the child who witnesses what this thing is supposed to look like and if they're a man emphasize the masculine roles and show that you're also able to do some of the feminine stuff if you're a woman show the daughter what it means to be a good wife but that you're also going to need to uh take on to yourself certain masculine traits. Yeah. Um, you need strong women insofar as they're able to be a woman well, uh, which means being a good helper. Hmm. So um, that's just sort of as an aside, but I think it's important that we make those sort of uh, observations about the general dynamics because people can get weird when it comes to this conversation and run into hmm. all sorts of insane you know, uh, uh, manifestations of what they think their role is. Yeah. Um, one more thing that I want to say, and then I'll throw it back over to you as we sort of wind down here. Uh, but I also think that when you're moving a family, if the father is leading, the father needs to be very clear and vulnerable about his weaknesses. And this is actually what I think makes him strong. Uh, what a strong leader do, does is recognize that he is a sinner. He is utterly broken and in desperate need of sovereign grace. 
without Jesus, he can't really do anything that's worth anything other than just sort of bootstrap his whole life and just go out there and rah, until he dies. Right. Uh, but it's and the, the Bible is very clear on this. It's through our weakness that God's power is made manifest. When you have a man, a leader that recognizes his weaknesses, the areas that he's functionally weak, like in terms of just capacity of things to do in a day, he's spiritually weak. Here are the sins that beset me. He's emotionally weak. Here's where I get triggered. Uh, he's socially weak. Here's where I'm awkward in my circles. When a man can be self-reflectively uh, conscious of the, the weakness and then communicate that weakness to the woman, she actually can step in and help because women are more acquainted with their weakness than I think men are. That they, their emotional lives are a tad more richer. Um, they seem to be able to navigate all of the sticky. Well, women of, are women are more prone to self doubt in a certain way than men are, and that's why you. That's what. That's mm. part of the reason that they make less money in a lot of careers is because. You know, and the social scientists have traced this down is that women are are um, higher in agreeability than men are. So men just basically yeah. bug the boss until we get a raise because we think we're, um, you know, the best thing ever. We think we're the best <laughs> thing ever. Whereas women, ha you know, suffer from that self-doubt and they're willing to make themselves content with less. And so that that I think that goes into what you're saying about being acquainted with or or aware of their weaknesses in a in a way that men don't typically tend to be. Yes. And women vice versa. Yeah. If a woman's weakness is that she does, she tends not. So it's interesting. A woman's weakness typically generally manifests in being too masculine. That's yeah, actually right. her weakness uh, is that she wants to be the authority. She wants to dominate. She wants to upend mm -hmm. the hierarchy. She doesn't want to be the stay at home mother that takes care of the kids and cooks and cleans because that to her is weak. And the view that that's weak is actually part of women's weakness. Hmm. Um, and we can help our women in that department also. And the, the only reason I bring all this up is to just affirm your point earlier when you were saying that the way that this all cashes out in terms of roles and nature in the modern world is we can only use generalities and the dynamics are so complex that in, it, you would have to sit down with someone and know everything about their situation before you can make a judgment on what they need to do better in their life. Yeah. All we can offer is general principles that is pretty clear from nature and scripture that this is the way that things should operate. Yes. If you see a man who is, you know, not providing for his family, not leading his family, um, not protecting them, not setting any, any sort of vision for the direction the faith, the commitments or culture of the family, then he is obviously abdicating his biblical role. Even if, even if we don't get into specifics about what he is or isn't doing, you know, economically, he does have a concrete biblical uh, mandate to do those things. But as we train people, and this gets back to the discussion of building from the ground floor, you know, building from the, the, the place yeah. where our culture has left us, as we train people, we need to keep in mind the progression of maturity that happens in childhood and then mm. in scripture as well. And I have to thank Seraphim again for this, it was pointing out how scripture is a progression from, uh, from, from uh, an immature, childlike people of God uh, who needs to be given uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules to govern their lives to a mature um, brother-like 
people of God who, who now only need two rules, you know, love God and love your neighbor. And, and that is because now they are mature and discerning sons who can, uh, who can intuit the father's will based on his, his core principles. And so as we walk alongside, as you and I do this with families, we know as we do this with our own families and as pastors, most importantly, do this with their uh, congregations, families in their churches, they need to recognize that there will be some uh, rulemaking. You're going to be laying down some rules and saying, you need to stop doing this. You need to start doing this. And it's going to look like a bunch of hard and fast rules about roles. Um, and some of those may be timeless. Some of those may be prudential, you know, things that you're just telling yeah. him to do, telling the family to do because that's the circumstance they're in. But as time moves on, you should be able to work families, even on the level of generations, along to the point where you can then say, okay, you guys know what the basic orientation and shape of things is. You know what the meaning of male and female are. You know what God's intent for bringing them together was. Uh, You now have the wisdom and maturity to make a lot of the ground level decisions for yourself as as it pertains to roles. Yeah. And and we can talk about, you know, moving the gener- the next generation up to a higher level of maturity because we understand the core um, pursuits that we are we're on as as families. And that's where I mean, I guess that's where I am with my yeah. family, um, because there is some nitty gritty role stuff. But there's also a lot of, you know, explaining the bigger vision. And when you talk about males and females having this or masculine and feminine overlapping in a certain way that biological male and female don't that is that's really key and that makes me think of perilandra where um, mm. you know lewis has the archetypes of male or masculine and feminine which actually precede male and female he says male and female are just the the faint biological echo of these eternal heavenly yeah. ideas of male and female or forms we might say you know in lewis's right, thinking right. Yes. um and that those those ideals inform not just our biology, but every aspect of creation. There are this is a place of beginnings and fulfillments of uh, of forming and filling, of initiation and glorification, of uh, you know of seeds and fruit, of yeah. uh, all of all of these things. Uh, fall into that binary of male and female. And there's a lot of overlap that happens. And that overlap we see happening in, even in our home lives where we do, you and I do become nurturers. Um, But in a certain sense, we do that through and with our wives. It's almost like, because we are stepping into their primary domain. Um, it It is as we come as as husbands and fathers into that domain. They made us that. We don't yes. come just on our credentials as men. In the same way, when they step into when when the wife steps into the husband's realm, she is not entering based on her credentials as a woman. She's entering based on her union with that man and saying, I am now mm-hmm. a good steward and and confidant and first mate of his. I go and you know by the field uh, that I have considered. I work, you know, from dawn to dusk. I I praise his name in the, in the marketplace or whatever that all of those things are, are, are intermeshed because masculine and feminine are intermeshed and we can live that out in our, in our family roles. And it's just a, you know, I could just yammer on about it forever and ever, but yes, yes. 
Yes, it is. And that's why I think uh, having you on today was just perfect because this is a conversation. I hope if anything from this conversation, um, people walk away with understanding how this is actually a very big conversation. Mm -hmm. And there's a ton of fine grain discourse that goes into really understanding what we mean when we say, this is my family, this is my home. Um, so if anything, I hope this uh, would prompt people to look deeper into the things that we've talked about. We've mentioned some resources here. Uh, Shane, you've written some beautiful article over the, uh, articles over the years for uh, primarily the Colson Center, but also uh, over there on your Pathos blog. Right. Um, but I would heartily recommend uh, look up Shane's articles on marriage and raising children and uh, um, gender and roles. It's, it's good stuff. Uh, you're truly a beautiful thinker on this stuff, brother, and I appreciate all your wisdom. Um, so we will uh, You're beautiful tie it too, up. Dale. Oh, thanks. I know. <laughs> it's my femininity. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us have a little more of it than others. That's true. I'm sorry. I'm stepping into dangerous territory there as a beardless man. I can't really. <laughs> yes, right. Yes, and I'm. I will take uh, screenshots from this and make memes of you, brother. So, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> yes. So Shane, thank you, brother. It was always a pleasure to chat with you, and uh, we'll do it again soon. It was great. Thanks, Dale.